Let's start. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I'm Beverly Ross. I am the founder and executive director. Okay, I'm sorry. My name is Beverly Ross. I'm the founder and executive director of Wise County Christian Counseling. I have a nonprofit counseling center in Decatur, Texas. In September, we opened a new wing of the counseling center, which is called Jenny's Hope. Um, we do counseling services for children for their families, for their parents, or whoever are raising them now. We've got aunts and uncles, we've got foster families, we've got grandparents, we've got one set of great-grandparents raising these little children who are in grief. Um, I spend a lot of time, I'm also a supervisor, a therapist, and I spend a lot of time teaching counselors, teaching volunteers, how to stand with people walking out the road of grief. The title for this year's Harbor drew my heart from the moment I saw it. Broken Hallelujah. There is a song called A Broken Hallelujah. And that song was at a young woman's funeral in 2010 when I thought I wasn't going to take another step. I wasn't sure if I would ever speak again, and I wasn't sure how I was going to stand and walk out life. That funeral was my daughter's. She was 31, had been diagnosed with the flu, and really she had group A strep, and we went into the battle for life for almost th three weeks. Since then, I've done a lot of work. When you are in grief, you hang out with grievers a ton. And one of the things that I've found out, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on right now, we could spend the whole hour exploring other paths of grief. Because one of the things that I've been enlightened on is death is not the only grief-producing event, Truth, We've got stuff in our lives that are really hard. What I want to spend our time on today is how can we, as people on the journey beside people in grief and in pain and people with a broken hallelujah, which from my viewpoint today is every one of us. Would you agree with that? We all have brokenness in our lives. We all are trying to figure that out. And I use the exact same title this time. A few years ago, I taught a class here called Surrounding Our Wounded from the aspect of how can we help our wounded. But today what I want to do is a different slant on that and do how can we as the helpers walk beside, how can we take care of ourselves and be in our healthiest place to do that. So what I'm going to do in the next hour is I want us to look at this ball of caretaking, this ball of being with, and for some of you, you're going to go, you're just saying the same thing over and over again. And maybe so. But I think there's different ways that we all hear the same thing. So to me, the only way I could walk out grief is to basically bust the ball apart and go, here's a piece. Let's chew on this for a minute. Here's another piece. Let's chew on this for a minute. Here's another piece. Let's take this apart. But as I prayed over our time together, and I prayed over every one of you, not knowing who you would be when you came in this room, I want to start the same way I want to close. And if you don't hear anything else I say other than this one line, I'm okay with it. 
Because listen to me clearly, and if you were in my office, what I would be doing right now is I would be reaching across my office, I would be holding your hands, and I would be looking into your eyes and saying this. What you do matters in the heavenly kingdom. What you do, how you walk this path out, matters. I want all of my counselors to know that. In mental health professions, we have a really high burnout rate. And I've got really great therapists on staff with me, and I want to speak life into them. And I want them to be able to do this for a long time. They're all a lot younger than me. And I want to speak hope into them. And I want to speak peace into them. And I want them to be able to find some healthy tools to do this. All of our volunteers that work at Jenny's Hope, we have 52 volunteers in our little tiny community that want to work with grieving children. They all have a grief story. But I want to speak into them. I want you taking care of you. When you are away from us, I want you taking care of you in a way that you will be volunteering at Jenny's Hope for years to come. Because what you do matters. In life, I believe it is about the decision of what are you going to do when fear rises up for you and we all have it. We do not get a choice whether we're going to experience fear or not. Since the beginning of Genesis, well, Genesis 3, fear is part of the human experience. But what we do get a choice about is how are you going to walk it out when fear hits? It's not if, it's how. How we walk into the arena of life, that is where it matters. How do you handle bravery? How, how do we allow our bravery? How do we allow the bravery that the Spirit puts inside of us to overwhelm our fear? How do we allow that voice to be louder? And I think it is through some intense self-discipline, which I am not great at. And so a lot of what I'm writing to you, I went through my journal and I pulled some pieces out of my own journal with, these are some things I struggle with. And I think, I want to say this with all kindness, but I think if you were honest, there are things that you struggle with too. There are things I hear from other people. This is really hard. And so, what does it look like to self-care in a way that we can live this out with strength, with strength of the Holy Spirit, and how can we walk this out in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord? I love reset buttons. What about you? I love reset buttons, except when I punch them accidentally on my phone, but typically I love a reset button. I like fresh starts. January is a fresh start, and oh yeah, I never miss an opportunity. I'm always doing New Year's resolutions. I got big plans for the new year. I'm all over them. I do one little word for the new year. I like fresh starts, January 1. I taught school for 12 years. I love the first day of school. I still celebrate the first day of school because it's a reset button in my life. My body just knows after 12 years to reset the beginning. And for the last few years, this week, Pepperdine has been a reset button for me spiritually. It's been a reset button to be at the ocean. 
It's been a reset button to see the mountains. It's a reset button to hang out with friends. It's a reset button to see people I haven't seen for a very long time and just get a little foretaste, just a little appetizer of what heaven's going to be like. Don't you know we're going to spend the first two years just running around high-fiving each other? Oh, it's been so long. I'm so happy to see you. Where are we going to eat tonight? You know, just all that stuff going on. The excitement and the thrill of it. Reset. Reset. This morning I was reading from the psalm, Psalm 71. As far as it goes with me, I will always have hope. And so the number one thing that I believe about self-care is you've got to know what your values are. You've got to know what do you value the most. Before Jenny died, hope was her word. And now I lean into hope. Ah, big decisions to make one hour. How much do I want to talk about that? But we could do, I think last year I did the whole thing on, on this of the road to Emmaus, and the two people are walking along, and they're, oh, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. And they're walking with who? With hope. Capital H. Peter calls him the living hope. Paul calls him the hope of glory. They're walking with capital H hope. And for all of us, sometimes our lowercase h gets beaten, huh? but we walk with hope. The way I put this to my children when I was raising them is what do you want said about you at your funeral? I had no idea I'd be there for one of their funerals. But that, my friends, is what a value is. It's what do you want said about you when your life is done? What do you want said about you when it's over? I remember Jenny telling us once, Mom, do you remember when I was a little girl and you taught me to plan my funeral? And I said, I did. Yeah, I remember that. She said, Mom, I've been thinking about my funeral. This is way before she was sick, years before she was sick. She said, I don't want people to ever walk by my casket and say, oh, there's that poor infertile woman. Jenny struggled, all caps, with secondary infertility. I don't want people to know me as that girl that struggled with infertility. But I want people to walk by my casket someday and say, there is a woman who continued to praise and serve the Lord when she didn't get her way. And so, what a way to start. But I think it's an important question. In Israel, at the doorpost, they have the Shema. And so, the Jewish people are always touching the doorpost. I think of my value as my Shema on the doorpost. It's my touch point. Sometimes I see clients every hour or two, depending on if it's a marriage or family. And in between those times, I have to hit a reset on, did I live in my values in that session? I need to touch a doorpost and remind myself. Did I offer hope? Did I give practical tools of hope? Did I speak a word of hope? My own belief system says this, that the light of heaven is not on where I've been, the light of heaven is not on where I am right now. I believe the light of heaven is on where you're going to take the next step. And as a caretaker, I need to center up constantly. Or I lean into the despair of the people I'm helping. If I don't press the reset, 
let me say this a different way, just for us. If you don't press the reset, you're going to end up in the pain spiral, huh? And isn't that easy to do? We end up spiraling as caretakers, as people wanting to speak a word of hope. What you do matters, and you need to know what is it. What is it about you that you value the very most? So now we're going to go to a different end of the ball. These are random. I know they are. I've got nine of them. They are just random. Number two would be rest. And I don't want anybody in this room that knows me very well to be laughing right here. I'm a high-energy girl. And at Life Group Sunday, I heard somebody say, an older man, one of a man that's been an elder, he's not an elder at our church, but he's in an el- been an elder at a church in Alabama for years. And I heard him say this. I wished I'd taken care of my body when I was yet younger. It's failing me now. I wished I'd known some things. God made our bodies for rest. And I've got one of the counselors that I'm supervising right now speaking life into me with that. She asked me, not every day, but frequently, how much rest did you get last night? You see, I used to be the girl that bragged on how little rest I could get by on. How much sleep did you get? About three to four hours, and I'm fine. Liar, liar, pants on fire, you know what I mean? That's all I need. And I know that people that know the way of the Lord go, no, 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 that's not all you need. Because rest is imperative to not burning out, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Rest of our spirits, rest of our bodies. That is not bragging rights anymore on how little rest do you need. You need rest. Okay, I'm going to really be bold here. I'm going to step out here because I believe what the research is saying is we need eight to eight and a half hours every night. You've got to have rest. We've got to plan some restful times. Rest. Number three is being mindful of our emotions. When I'm helping a griever, when I'm helping a teenager, when I'm helping a little child, whose father um, completed suicide. I have my own set of emotions that crop up. And if I suppress those for very long, they are going to come out in ways that hurt other people. We have got to be mindful of our emotion. The only... Some, let me say it like this. Sometimes for us, the only emotions we acknowledge are I'm happy or I'm mad. Maybe sad. But if I feel confused, I get mad. If I don't know what to say, I'm mad. If I feel afraid, I'm mad. Mad is a very American-friendly emotion. Somebody say truth. I mean, aren't you tracking with me? We are okay expressing that one. But there's a whole lot of other emotions. In fact, what we say in the therapeutic world is anger is not a primary emotion. If mad is what you're feeling, dig a little more. But you see, we as the caretakers have to get underneath that or we end up hurting the very people we're trying to help. We 
got to know. We got to get curious. What is it? What is it that, that we're feeling? We've got to hit a pause button and be mindful of our emotion, which goes right in with number four, which is self-compassion. I got a new book. I'm brand new in it, but I am going to share it with you just so. I brought a couple of books to share with you. A tool. I got this for my birthday. A friend gave this to me, and it's called The Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. The guru in self-compassion is Kristen Neff, N-E-F-F. Kristen Neff is a New Age writer. And it really makes me mad. Let me tell you what. Makes me mad. Not, not really, but... Why didn't we come up with this? Why didn't people who follow the way of Jesus develop the concept of self-compassion? Because what Dr. Neff tells us about self-compassion is it is much more powerful than self-esteem. Self-esteem is from a job well done, which means we're constantly comparing ourselves with other people when you want self-esteem. And we're told the only time you can really have it is when you excel. And so what do you do with the rest of us that aren't the best of the best at everything, which is all of us? All records have been broken. Somebody say truth. You know what I mean? The skill I wished I'd known to teach my children and the skill I want to speak into with the people I help and the skill I want to teach my counselor, the skill I want to teach my volunteers and the skill I want to tell you about and the skill I speak to me. How can we talk to ourselves like we would talk to a friend? When I'm working with people in pain, I always mess up. And I've been doing this hard. I mean, this is what I do. And you know why I mess up? Because I can say it what was perfect for you to hear, but it was totally wrong for you to hear. You with me? We see it in eyes, we see it on faces. And so I have to be gentle with me. With me sometimes, I would say, this is truth and this isn't very pretty, but I would go, you are such an idiot. Why did you say that? I would never say that to one of you. Never. But I say it to me. But that is not going to encourage me to keep walking when I mean to myself when I make a mistake. That is going to either make me with my personality, say more stupid stuff, because then I start talking more. Is anybody like that in here? If I get nervous, I talk more. Or it makes me go totally silent. And I may or may not have anything to say the next time we get together because I'm scared I'm going to say the wrong thing. But self-compassion is where we're mindful of what's going on inside of us. Self-compassion is where I learn to be gentle with me. And listen to me, my friends. This is what I can say in this group. I speak to myself like Jesus would want me spoken to. I speak to myself in a way that breathes life into my own spirit. Because that's the way the spirit wants me spoke. I develop the spirit's language within myself. That was really hard, Beverly. Man, you really showed up there and that was so hard. Maybe you need to go apologize, circle back. Maybe you need to speak a word of truth there. Self-compassion is huge for us. So we've done values. We've done rest. We've done mindful about our emotions. Talked about self-compassion. 
going along with this, this is some language I want to use for number five that has changed my own life. And that is, I want you to give yourself permission. Give yourself permission. Literally, I write it out all in this journal I have right here. And you will not find it laying around because I keep my journal close to me. <laughs> but I have written, I give myself permission to. I give myself permission to speak a hard truth. I give myself permission to rest. I give myself permission to have this conversation. I give myself permission to acknowledge this. I give myself permission to spend extra time in the restroom stall because I just need to cry for a minute. I give myself permission to be here. I give myself permission to do something brave, which means to do something hard. I give myself permission to make a phone call of encouragement that without relationship would look like rebuke. Are you tracking with me with that? I don't know why I want to say this right here, but I want to say this right here. And I guess I could put it under self-compassion. Don't ever correct or rebuke someone that you were not willing to journey with them through the process of healing and recovery. We, as believers in the Lord Jesus, do not ever rebuke and run. We hold. We're with. I speak a word of truth. I have to do break. That's what people pay me to do. But when they leave my office, as, much, as far as it goes with me, as far as it goes with me, I want them to still experience the love of Jesus and the hope of Jesus that things can be better. But that's where I've got, that's where all this ball comes together. Because if I'm not mindful of my own emotions, sometimes I rebuke and run because of what comes up inside of me. Tell me if you're tracking with me. Does that make sense? Because I can say a whole lot more about that if it doesn't. Okay, so we've got values, rest, mindful, self-compassion. I want to go back to self-compassion. I left out a couple of things that I, I, don't want to, I don't want to leave out. A question of self-compassion is what do I need? When I first started into doing uh, counseling and particularly on the road of grief, my counselor, my own grief counselor, taught me that I needed to know something that I needed, whether it was emotionally something in prayer and I knew nothing, and I realized that wasn't just a grief story. I'd been taught as a little girl to need nothing. And that robs us of the spiritual link we have with each other, and it robs us of the spiritual link we have with the Lord himself. If we never come to the Lord with what we need, what do you need? Now, I've been known to do this when I'm walking the road of grief. I'm not really sure what I need, but let's try this. <laughs> you know, because I don't know. I don't know. But let's try this. Let's see if this is it. I call it going shopping for what Bevy might need. You know? <laughs> I don't know what it is. But let's try this on and see what this looks like. And let's try this on and see what this feels like. And let's see if we can get a connection going with this. There's two words. I have to say this. There's two words under the, under the umbrella of self-compassion that I try, 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 try to stop using. They, they were mean to me. 
I recognize one more in print. I probably recognize more in print that than I more in print both of them than I do when I speak. But I'm trying not to use the word just when it comes to me. Let me give you an example. Um, I just wanted to say that's minimizing me. No, I want to say. I was just thinking, you know, and I even say it kind of, I was just thinking. No, I was thinking, why don't we, we hedge. And I think women use it more than men. I'm not really sure. It's just the women in my world. The other one, this one's really hard, is the word should. Listen to me clearly, brothers and sisters. If you should do it, then either start doing it or quit talking about it. Isn't that just like getting out the emotional shovel or hoe and just heaping dirt on you? I should. I should make that call today. Well, stop and just make it or take it off the plate. If you should, do it, but quit shooting you. It's living under the dirt. And so frequently we, oh, I should call this griever. Oh, I should call this person in pain. And somebody say truth. Aren't we in this room, people have the heart given to the Lord. We've got a whole list of shoulds, which means we live with a lot of guilt. And I'm not my best self, nor am I going to want to do it with longevity when I'm living under a heap of guilt. So I'm saying let that should be your motivation. Ask, should I? Should I do that right now? Yes. Then shoot the text or make the call. But quit talking about it. Let it go. Let's figure that out with self-compassion. <coughs> Tell the truth. Aren't you glad I came back to self-compassion? I love that one. Okay. <laughs> Values, rest, mindful, self-compassion, giving ourselves permission. We live in a world, I'm going to say this with a period at the end, and I do think it's truth. We live in a world that peace can frequently be elusive, huh? And I'm not just talking external peace. I'm also talking my internal peace. We live in a world that I'm not taught to acknowledge my own peace. Now, I believe, and I believe that you believe, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is peace. And so what that means is there's some pieces of me, P-I-E-C-E-S, that have gotten in the way and clouded the peace that the Spirit has put in my heart. Some of you have heard me tell the story about eight weeks after Jenny's death. I was on my porch, my back porch. I could not read the whole time Jenny was in. Could not read. This was my first attempt at being able to hold space with a book. And I decided I was going to read through Job. And I was going to read it out of Eugene Peterson's work, The Message. Now, I confess, Job and I have never been great friends. <laughs> Job just wasn't a place I wanted to camp until Jenny died. And then I thought, I'm going to read through Job. And at the end of Job 3, it says something like this. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. There is no rest. There is no peace. Death has invaded life. And Eugene Peterson's work is huge. So I close that big Bible. I'm like, that's exactly right, Lord. That is exactly right. 
since Jenny's died, I haven't had any peace. And before her death, I'd always, I mean, I've always been a pretty peaceful girl, a pretty peaceful person, but I couldn't find any peace. And then I know the Lord spoke into me. It was not in a male voice, but it was in a settling in my soul that the Lord spoke to me. And he said, my daughter, that is Job speaking from his place of pain. And where my spirit is, which is in you, my peace is there. Open the eyes of your heart to my peace. I've not had a whole day full of peace since Jenny died. But since that encounter on my porch, I've not had a peaceless day. Are you tracking with me? What we do, and I'm not just talking our own grief journey, but what we do, the people in this room, it's hard to find peace dealing with pain constantly, huh? Some of the stories that we hear, some of the, the tugs on our heart, peace can feel so elusive when it's right inside. And so now, I've already sent this message a couple of times today to friends that I have that are in pain. My prayer over you, if you came to me and told me a story, may his peace be in your every breath. May his peace be in my every breath. May we be mindful enough. May we be self-compassionate enough that even when we're with people, this is in the middle of a session. This is in the middle of grief counseling. This is in the middle of being with my granddaughter who's in a, a grief storm too. I want to breathe in your peace. Let me just go slow enough. Let me take a deep enough breath that your peace makes a difference. It is our lifeline to do what we do with longevity. We cannot do it void of peace. Not external internal give ourselves permission to experience peace we give ourselves permission to experience joy joy i think it's laura williamson has done some research and she says this that joy is the most foreboding of every human emotion joy is the scariest emotion for us to experience Joy is the scariest emotion for us to allow ourselves to experience. I like that better. Because when you're all, I mean, you know this, you know this. When you're in full out breakout joy, I mean, this is good stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, this is good. You're feeling good about life. All of a sudden it's, what if the other shoe dropped? I can't get this happy. I can't get this joyful. Because then what if? I'm hedgy to tell a story about when Jenny died because of this very thing. In January, before she went in the hospital in February, Rick and I repetitively were saying, does life get any better than this? This is pretty good stuff. We got three kids that we are crazy about, and they all married people we are crazy about. We love them. Got five grandchildren. Oh, they're so fun. They are so fun. They are the light of our lives. I mean, I know when they're coming. I just, I'm going to have a laughter storm for a few days. I mean, they are darling cute even when they're not trying to be darling cute. You know, they are just fun. But when I tell that story January and then February hit, do I give myself permission to go back to January? I'm talking in emotion. Do I give myself permission when my children are in town and David's over and all, friend, all, all five grands are there to go? Could it get better? 
I want to say that occasionally, and sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, it can get better. What if Jenny's still here? But I cannot let joy be elusive because I can't do it long term if I don't allow myself, if I don't give myself permission to experience joy. Okay, give me feedback. That's the first time I've ever said that out loud on a microphone. Give me feedback. Does it make sense? I need to know that. Joy. We give ourselves permission to experience full out onslaught, onslaught of joy. Because it's like him. We have, somebody once told me, when you're using your spiritual gifting, there's several components when you know you're in your gift, you're going to have opportunity to use it. You don't have to create it. It will be there. The Lord will give you the opportunity to use your gift. You will have affirmation from people because the purpose of your gift is to call other people into this thing we call the body of Christ, into kingdom work. And you will have joy when you're using it because that's in the spirit. People ask me frequently, how do you do what you do all day long? And my response back, I don't know. It's the Spirit giving me joy to walk beside hurting people because I am one. It makes me feel not alone when I can arm up beside other people walking through. There's joy in the journey when we're together going, he's this way. Go this way. The light of heaven is this way. Direction is everything. And we give ourselves permission to go with whatever pace we're in. Sometimes I'm running. Sometimes I'm walking. Sometimes I'm crawling. And sometimes I'm looking that, that way, just going, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming, Jesus. I'm coming. It's hard to move. But direction of our eyes is everything. Truth? Mm-hmm. So, we give ourselves permission not to retaliate. When somebody says something rude, that doesn't mean you have to retaliate. It may have nothing to do with you. You don't have to defend you. My silence sometimes speaks, more, speaks louder than my retaliation would, and I can retaliate pretty loud. <laughs> but if I say nothing... And it's not from a place of low simmer anger. It's from a place of total strength from the spirit that I'm not called on to retaliate. I give myself permission to be silent. That's hard for me. I give myself permission to speak a hard word of truth. And I want to talk more about that in a few minutes. Going along with joy is going to be my number six, and it's you've got to be people of gratitude. If we're going to do this long term, if we're going to walk this road out long term, we've got to do it with the spiritual discipline of gratitude. It is impossible for the brain, I think I've said this the last several years here, but I think it's so important. It's impossible for our human brain to experience two conflicting emotions at the same time. You cannot experience anxiety and gratitude at the same time. It's not going to happen. Philippians 4, be anxious about nothing. But with thanksgiving, pray, pray. Gratitude. Gratitude calms anxiety. Gratitude calms anxiety. 
gratitude is a deeply spiritual discipline that we want to lean into. And gratitude, catch this friends, is the only pathway to joy. This is not just Christian research. Every person, this was over a thousand people interviewed that claimed to have joy in their lives. When asked, tell us what you do. Without exception, 100% of the people that claim they experience joy, 100% said they had a gratitude practice. Either prayed with gratitude, meditated with gratitude, gratitude walk, gratitude journal, did something around just being thankful with gratitude. Power. With gratitude, what we know in science is that it opens your neurotransmitters up to learn. You want to learn something new? You have gratitude practice. Anxiety, which is the opposite, clamps your brain closed. I'm just getting this itch right here, I guess, as I'm looking at some younger faces. And don't you see how powerful this information is in parenting? To teach our children gratitude practices? We just did at Wise County Christian Counseling a test anxiety class. We did it for younger kids. We did it for older kids at the request of our pediatricians. Because our children in the state of Texas, I'm assuming in some of your states, are feeling a whole lot of pressure about the test. Let's get together. Let's talk about how can we call that, calm that anxiety. And our counselors were, enter into your gratitudes. Go to your gratitudes before the test. Go to your gratitudes. Let's speak those. Let's do some breaths. This is with six and seven-year-olds, my friends. This is with little children. Gratitude practices. And seven, which I love this one. I'm not really good at this one yet. I'm working on getting better at this one. But it's developing the practice of play. Play. Now, what do you do to play? There's a lot of research out right now. This is another book I brought to show you. Play by Dr. Stuart Brown. This is a great little book. Great tool. Play. Stuart Brown says, just because our children use the word play does not mean it's play to us. Like, I love playing with my grandkids. I love it. But when they say, Grammy, you want to play Monopoly? I'm like, oh. <laughs> Sure. I mean, it's not my favorite. And I typically will say I'm going to play it because I never tell them no. I, I don't. It's just not. I don't. I just don't do that. But I confess. I confess. But, um, you know, I have to tell you, his youngest son still, when I'm around, even though I don't do it anymore, I really don't, still asks to eat the packets of sugar off the table at a restaurant. Because he asked me about three years ago if he could, and I said, sure. And so he ate the packets of sugar. Well, then he got with his parents after a few days. And Casey said he just started opening the sugar. She said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to eat the sugar. She said, who said you can do that? And Noah said, Grammy. He said, we're calling Grammy. And then she called and her words to me are, it takes us three weeks to detox after the kids have with you. Oh, oh well. Because <laughs> we play. But when they ask me to play Monopoly or Life, it's like, I'll play for 20 minutes. That's not play for me. Play is not something you're staring at the clock to wait for it to be done. Play is when you can be silly. 
Play is when you lose track of time. Play is when you're not as concerned what you look like. We, because of the heaviness of what we do in life, we have got to have times of play. Play may be different for me than it is for you. Play may be different for me than it is for you. We all need to go shopping for giving ourselves self-compassion, giving ourselves permission to explore. When do I feel like I really played? That was fun for me. That was fun for me. I love doing that. Listen to this, my friends. The opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. People who play do not become depressed. And I feel this real ink to say this right here, so I'm going to speak a word into this. These typically get messed up unless you walk the road, and sometimes they, they may then too. Grief and depression are not the same. Grief is a healthy response to love lost. Mm, to love, I don't like lost. I can't think of another word. I don't like that word, though. I'm, I'm going to use this one. I may clean it up before next year. Grief is a healthy response to love paused. My love for Jenny has not stopped at all because of her death. I just don't get to enjoy it and play with the two-way two street with it right now. I was with a, a grieving mother. I have a, an adult group, and one of our, our grieving mothers said last week, she came in laughing, and I said, what's up? She said, I have to tell you, I went over. Uh, her son died two days before he was supposed to move into a brand-new home that they had built, they had designed, they had built out on this property. I mean, this had been a year-long project, multiple-year-long project. She said, I went out, and I helped my daughter-in-law hang pictures, and we were laughing that we won't be able to see Keith get older as all of us do. And I was so grateful that she could laugh about that. And then tomorrow she may need to give herself permission to go, I'm not going to see Keith get older. But grief is healthy. Grief is from the Lord. Grief is that response. It's not unhealthy. Grief does not need to be healed. That phrase, time heals all wounds, I go, no, 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 no. We all have known, somebody say truth, we all have known people that just let time go and that, it did not heal them at all for whatever it was. They became more bitter, angrier, maybe uh, inclusive, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Re reclusive, reclusive, that they hide more because of time. Now I used to say, time done well heals. Well now I don't like that anymore. Because grief does not need to be healed. It's not a disease. It's not a sickness. We learn to carry our pain. We learn to carry it. doesn't need to be healed. But depression, that needs to be healed. Depression needs to be done healthy, healthy. People who don't sleep are more likely to become depressed. People who don't play become depressed. 
People who use a lot of shoulds, there's no research on that. I'm just throwing that out. Look at the rest. Don't you love I tell you at least when I'm talking from no research. I tell you when it's just my idea. But that's true. Play. Number eight, there's only two left. Number eight is kindness. It just makes you feel better about you. It just makes me feel better about me when I lean into kindness. And just like I said about self-compassion, and when I said, I wish we had thought of that, I wish we as believers had done all the work on self-compassion because I think Jesus is a champion for self-compassion. But I want Christians. I want people who follow the way of Jesus. I want people whose direction is set on heaven. We are called, brothers and sisters, to be the kindest people whose feet walk on dirt. Now, let me be really brave here and say this. This is brave for me because it was hard. But I do not believe that being nice and being kind are the same. Being nice is when I camouflage pieces of me to make you like me or to hope you'll like me. Being nice. Lynn Hybels wrote a book years ago called Nice Girls Don't Rule the World. That's true. But kindness mentioned as a fruit of the Spirit, as a component of the Spirit, is from a place of strength. Kindness is from a place of, of you can't do it without the Spirit inside of you. And I think we all will agree, and if not, I There'll be a class in here after, but I do want to talk to you. If you disagree with this statement, wait for me right at the door because we got to talk. Our culture can use more kindness. Truth? And we as believers in Jesus should be the kindest people on the planet. We're not on Facebook bashing people just because they feel differently than we feel about politics. We're not the ones name calling. We're not the ones making a hobby out of one issue that we haven't even heard the story of. Let me just say what I'm talking about with that. Let me be really bold here. How much pain oh, I deal with in my office by women, some young and some older than me, that have had an abortion or that paid for their child to have an abortion. And then they sit in church and they hear that disgust as the unforgivable. I even had one young woman, oh, she had a necklace on when she came into my office from a Christian school. I said, what, what's on your necklace? She said, it's a date. I said, the date of what? The date when I had my abortion. I never want to forget what I did. Her parents had given her that necklace. So she'd never forget what she did. Don't you ever do anything like that again. Do you really think it took a piece of jewelry to remind her? But how many times, if we do not invite them back into the body, and if our language is not such that they are forgiven, and if we do not welcome that back in with kindness, do you know the research that says how many more they're going to have? Because that has become their identity. I'm the one who. But it makes me feel better about me when I'm just kind. 
when I look at her and I say, no, 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 no. Jesus' blood covered that. God doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're the one who. No, 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 no. You're forgiven. You're the young woman stepping up out of ashes. The ashes of sin. We step in with kindness. We step in with truth. We step in even when somebody is calling names about somebody we don't agree with and we agree with the names that are calling of a political character we've never even met. But we're the one who says, I can't do that. I tell you, that's hard for me right now. There's some mean-spirited stuff going on. We gotta be the ones, my friends. We've gotta be the ones. Without kindness is where high burnout begins to happen because it's exhausting. It makes us feel tired. But kindness shows up and it gives us all a little inkling of the heavenly realms. When we value all people, that doesn't mean I agree, but I value you as a person. In fact, I heard Dr. Brene Brown say one time, 50 minutes in, first time I said Dr. Brown's name. <laughs> Y'all know, if you've heard me speak before, you know it's usually the first three. But I heard her say before, if you have not eaten at table with someone who feels differently than you do about an issue, you don't have a right to express an opinion about it. If you have not sat with someone that feels differently than you do and heard what they feel about that issue, keep your mouth shut. Wow, did I say that with a period at the end? I think that's kindness. We figure it out. How hard is it? How divisive is it? To have people talking about all these issues with great clarity that they haven't heard the other side for. And so... Number nine, and wrapping it up, exactly where we started, is no, 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 that what you do matters. Now, I don't care if you write that on your bathroom mirror. I don't care if that's on your phone, screensaver, your computer, posty notes, whatever you, you do. You need to know that what you do today matters. The way you treat people matters. And so I want to tell you a Bible story at the end, and I'm hoping we may have a few minutes for Q&A. This will be a story we all know, we're very familiar with. But it's brand new for me praying it in a caretaker response. And so I've been praying over this passage. I used it at our fundraiser this year, and I'm absolutely obsessed with the story. I can't get the picture out of my mind. And it's the story in Exodus 14. At the end of Genesis, the Israelites were the top dogs. Everything was good for them. I mean, they were doing great. And then God goes silent, as far as we know, for 420 years between Genesis and Exodus. And then Exodus opens, and the Lord begins to roar. You can feel the movement when you're reading through the beginning of Exodus. Something's about to happen. And it says he begins to roar because the Israelites are no longer top dogs anymore. They are now the slaves. They are being beaten. 
They are being abused. They are being significantly hurt, overworked, treated like animals or worse. And then God brings the plagues. And and we're told that the plagues are not just for the Egyptians to know God is God. The plagues are also for the Israelites to know God's power. Because God's about to do his first redemption, a huge redemption work. And so the last plague happens, which is death. And Pharaoh, as they've been begging him, let us go. Please let us go. We just want to go. Pharaoh says, go. Get out. No more death. Out. And so there they go with their wounded bodies, with their broken hearts, their damaged spirits. They gather up to leave. Can you picture arm in arm, limping, Sometimes I like to put myself in that story. Who would I be walking with? Who would I be helping across? A mother whose husband had been murdered, who has her own scars on her body, whose children may have been hurt. Would I be helping her? Or would I be helping an older person? My mom or my dad looking. They were walking with a cane or maybe having to crawl because of the abuse that they'd struggled with in their bodies. So they leave, they come to the Red Sea, and there's this moment that is like just this huge, changing moment that happens there. And the people look at Moses and they say, we just want to go back. Why did you bring us out here? I hear that from clients all the time. I just want to stay in my pain because, see, they know what their pain feels like. We're all tempted to go back to familiar pain. I know what it feels like. I know what it sounds like. I know how to wake up feeling that. But then Moses says this beautiful phrase that a lot of us have on plaques in our home. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You just need to be still. The Lord's going to fight for you. Because see, what's happening with the Israelites here is they're at the Red Sea. They don't know what's going to happen at the Red Sea. But they can feel the Egyptians, the enemy, who's changed his mind, their minds, breathing down the back of their necks. So they're caught. Water, horrible breath. They're scared. The Israelites, we just want to go back to familiar. Moses says, freeze and don't do anything. The Lord is going to fight for you today. Those Egyptians you're never going to see again. Just let the Lord do his thing. That's not exactly what it says, but you know what I mean. That's just a little liberty I took with it. But then's the best part that sometimes we miss. But the Lord said, move on. He goes on to say, this is my version again. I'm going to part that Red Sea when somebody puts their toe in it. I'm going to part that Red Sea when somebody moves into faith. You see, I don't believe, and sometimes we've been guilty of saying to grievers or people in pain, move on. I'm not sure that that's exactly what the Lord is saying there. I believe what he is saying there is move on with. Move on with. Get into the water. Move on with me. 
get into the water. Move on with each other. Move on with your hope. Move on toward my face. Get together. Get together as a people. Walk with me. God says, I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to reveal my miracle when somebody steps into the water. And that, my friends, requires all the self-care we can do. Somebody say truth. To encourage other people to move on with us. Move on with us. So, <laughs> I always close with this verse. I'm going to press a pause right there. I'm going to close with a verse right now. I want to read this verse over you. It's in Psalm 71, and it's about hope. I'm going to read in 18. I'm going to read something at the very bottom. It says this, Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I'll declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. I whom you have delivered, my tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. Truth? Isn't that what we want to let Pepperdine do for us this year? Reset, rejuvenate, rejuvenate and give us the living into the empowerment already there to speak the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord all day long into hopelessness, and into an unkind world. May we reflect him well. I want to close with this verse. I close every session, whether it's in a grief group, whether it's in a Brene Brown group, whether it's with young children. My young children at Jenny's Hope can quote this verse with me, along with their mommies, daddies, and grandparents. I love this verse. This was Jenny's life verse, and now it's mine. Romans 15, 13. We're going to close it in with a prayer. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you, my friends, may overflow with hope by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It has been my blessing to be with you. It has been my blessing to share my heart with you. And I pray that if I messed anything up, that before it got to your ears, the Holy Spirit cleaned it up (laughs) and gave you a word from him this morning.